GKS 39 is powered by Cliff Central, uncensored, unhinged, and unradio. Hello and welcome to the Digital Kung Fu Show, the podcast and video cast for startup founders and entrepreneurs. Even if you're alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs across the world hustling today's markets. At Digital Kung Fu, we have one goal, to help entrepreneurs succeed in their ventures through information sharing, digitally connecting them with other entrepreneurs, and by dissecting and deconstructing the world's leading business minds right here on this show. Remember, you can view the full show notes on our website at digitalkungfu.co. Dot ZA, or tweet this show using our handle at Digital Kung Fu ZA or follow us on Facebook.com slash Digital Kung Fu ZA. Hey guys, so imagine for a second that you are running an 80 million rand a year business. You have a monopoly on your distribution channels and you enjoy the majority share of your market. Things are so good, in fact, that you are turning down offers for 11 million rand for just one of your brands in a portfolio of brands that you own. Things really are awesome. And now imagine that the same successful business that you run goes bankrupt in just a few short months. Now, you might be wondering if this is a bullshit story that I'm sharing with you, but you'd be wrong. This is, in fact, a true story. And the reason I wanted to share that with you is because it is becoming more and more commonplace in the business world today. You see, I always find it interesting to uncover what entrepreneurs do when the shit hits the fan like this, because it takes a lot of guts and determination to pick yourself up dust yourself off, and then reinvent yourself in the business world. And then to do that successfully too, really does take a lot of character. So this is the story of Brent Spilkin, who did just that and then some. He is the founder of Growing Pains Consultancy and the author of What the Freelance. Spilly, as he is affectionately known, has helped over 150 advertising, media, marketing, PR, digital software, branding, and content businesses and their owners develop, manage crises, strategize, and flourish, and his clients throughout South Africa, Israel, the United Kingdom, and the United States, and his clients now generate over 1 billion rands worth of annual sales revenue. Like I said, a lot of character. <laughs> so this interview is slightly longer than usual, and that's for very good reasons. Brent has an incredibly unique insight into the world of entrepreneurship and business, and he shares so many nuggets of his life lessons, which I know will empower you to become a more complete entrepreneur. I'm excited about this one, guys. So without further ado, enter Brent Spilkin. Hello and welcome to the 39th edition of the Digital Kung Fu Show. Our guest has uh, got a very interesting facial expression. I don't think he was uh, um, aware of how many shows I think we've actually produced. So, But that's all good. I'm your host, Matt Brown, who needs no introduction, I hope, at this stage. <laughs> and so today I am very grateful to have with us in the studio the founder and CEO of Growing Pains Business Consultancy, Brent Spilkin. Brent, thank you so much for thank your you. time today, buddy. It's great I'm, to. Uh, I'm sad it's not the 41st because I'm 41 this year, oh, yeah. so I was like, oh, it was close. Yeah. Close, cool. close enough. Okay. Well, you well can done always in, come well back. Well done in 39. It's, yeah. it's impressive. Thank you so much. But you're always welcome to come back here. Yeah? Cool. We have a revolving door policy. If you shit you out, if you're great, you can stay. <laughs> it's not enough punch or sell something, I'll call you. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. So, Brent, you've got a very interesting backstory, uh, which um, besides being an entrepreneur and, and a business coach, which we'll uh, talk about today, and also an author, by the way, uh, guys, for those of you who don't know, but you've been driving ambulances, mm-hmm. uh, you've been pickling mango achar and redeveloping the inner city. 
That's so correct. Do you what, want the whole? Do you want the whole let's story? Let's go. Yeah, please. So I, I feel like I'm on a sales pitch here. But um, <laughs> so the, the long and short of it was, I studied architecture, never practiced. So a little bit of like a, a creative itch deep down somewhere, probably a frustrative creative, <laughs> um, and then landed off, landed up pissing off to the UK. Okay, for your it, sins. It was a no. It was, it was meant to be a six week holiday. I was young, and as one does, met a, a nice young girl. Thought I was in love, and the day after my flight. Departed home, she broke up with me. But then I decided, well, I was going to take the year off and stick it out in the UK. And that's where I ended up driving ambulances and, and having drinking too much and having fun. I see. Okay. Um, that was late 94. Um, I then got a phone call and bear in mind, 94, no cell phone, no internet, no Facebook, none of those things. Got a phone call at the place I was staying. It was my father on the call and he said to me, um, I have a business partner in a business which I didn't know he, he owned who was basically schnaffing his brains out. So putting oh a lot of cocaine up his nose. Oh and he said, um, I wanted to come back and run this business. Well, I'm going to close it down. And I was young and arrogant and I was wearing 14 hole docks and hair down. Down past my shoulders, which wow. you'd probably laugh at now. Yeah, I would. <laughs> uh, and, 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 and a flaming liberal and told my friends, see you guys in three months. I'm going to just earn some cash and come back. And never came back. Lost contact with my friends that I was living with because didn't take phone numbers or because there was no Facebook. Mm. And was in the business for 17 years. So what? That, that little three months was a 17-year journey Holy for shit. me. So I walked into a little business. was out in the East Rand. It was a food manufacturing business. My father was a serial entrepreneur, so he had started a whole bunch of those kinds of businesses. He had uh, like sweet factories. He never got him a trick. He started a sweet factory. He, he used to sell and pack vinegar, uh, fruit juices. Like He'd always been in that sort of market, bottom end, black I say black market, not black goods, but like the black population in this country kind of market. Um, and I walked into a little business thinking I knew a lot of stuff and then realized within a couple of days I knew nothing. Yeah. Um, to a point where I actually found my mom the one day went, huh, Ma, like, what must I do? Like, I, like, I don't know what to do. Like, I actually had no idea, but I was young and I was angry and I was ambitious and I wanted to make money. So I worked my ass off. And um, did things the old school way. And the old school means that when we talk about sales, uh, today a lot of my clients go, oh, sales, that's Facebook, right? And I'm going, no, sales is when you park your car at the bottom of JP Street, get out the car, and walk into every single shop on that 5K road and go, hi, I'm Brent. I'm selling or peddling this. Please buy from me. And that's proper sales. That's old, old school sales. Out of the boots of the car, basically. Well, not, I mean, I had samples or a booklet, whatever it was. Yeah. But, but the fact was that I learned very quickly how sales actually works. Uh-huh. Um, and even those guys that go, oh, but Facebook, I'm like, yeah, Facebook works for a, to a point. But the guys making real money, the, the real businessmen, those deals happen in boardrooms. And those yeah. happen face-to-face with eye contact. Mm-hmm. And, and I preach that because mm-hmm. it still hasn't changed. So, yes, you can get your guys to buy your widget on your e-commerce store. But – to make a real business, you need to be presenting face-to-face. Yeah. So that's a skill that I learned the hard way. I wasn't aware I was learning a skill, but I, I learned that. Mm-hmm. Cut a long story short, grew the business nicely. Got up to about 30 staff, which in a food manufacturing business isn't very big. Bear in mind, you've you people packing, you've got sales staff, you've got delivery guys, you've got sales, like sales reps, uh, receptionists, bookkeepers. Not a very big business, but – giving me enough money to very quickly buy a little house in Parkhurst. And in late 99, early 2000, my memory is not as sharp as it used to be, I met a German business coach. Awesome. Who I was with for six years. And he taught me a lot around how to run a business academically 
And to stop trying to reinvent wheels when they'd been produced by somebody else and perfected by somebody else, just take them and plug them onto your onto your vehicle. Yeah. Um, so what he did was he, I didn't realize the time, but he took the, the major elements of an MBA, I mean, which elements are relevant to your business, and let's water them down or taper them for your business, and let's make it work. And the term didn't exist, but my business J-curved over those six years. Wow. And our relationship ended probably a year or two too long, but it was very valuable to me. Mm-hmm. And did a bunch of short, of short courses and continued growing the business. So then the business grew nicely in 2000 odd, just, just around at that, that time. My little business bought my father's other business. So we incorporated into one, one big business, bought a property, moved all the, all the guys into one space, merged the businesses, lessons learned. Um, at that point, probably about 150, 160 staff. Kept growing, kept growing, and got to a point where it was about 2007. We were doing about 80 million rand in revenue. Um, we had about 400 staff. We had 19 properties procuring and processing fruit for us. We had about our sales team, about 40 guys nationally, and we supplied everyone. And we supplied I said everyone, corner cafe, taxi rank butcher, through to your pick and pay shop, right spa, mass mart, woolies, our stuff, house brands, fresh fruit juices, Mango acha, all kinds of pickles, chutneys, like a whole range of stuff, uh, frozen yogurts, a whole bunch of stuff. But I hated my business. Okay. It was repetitive. Um, it had the five major elements you don't want in your business, which are short shelf life product, physical distribution, unionized staff, multiple properties, and retail as your client. Because the retailers know how to screw you properly, like uh-huh. that's their that's their business. So. so I had the major elements of shit you don't actually want in your business, um, but also learned a lot about sales because here we're selling something to buyers who've been trained not to be sold to. A lot of my current clients, we'll get into that later, are dealing with marketers as their clients or marketing managers. Those guys have no idea how to push back. No idea. So it's actually quite easy to sell stuff to brand and and, 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 and even me to agencies. Fairly easy. So repeat, I hated my business. And for the last three or four years of that business, I did everything in my power not to actually work in that business. Financially, I'd achieved my goals. Um, I discovered what my motivation was and I had lost my motivation. And I discovered this beautiful thing, which was called Twitter. And a very, very early Twitter number, I'm quite proud of it, got on Twitter and basically spent my life tweeting, sitting at my desk tweeting, like this was my thing. And grew quite a, a quick following, a large following in this country, got to about, you know, three, four, five thousand followers quite quickly, which at the time was monumental. Yeah. Like there was no one was, no one had anywhere near that. Um, and it was an alter ego. It was, it was me, but it was not really me. And loved it. Loved the notoriety. I used it as a dating platform. Lots of fun. <laughs> but then something strange happened was there's, there was this, at the same time, this wave of new agencies called digital agencies coming out of the woodwork. Um, they probably weren't even digital agencies. They were just agencies that understood something different. They weren't actually titled digital. And some of those guys came to me and said to me, hey, Spilly, like, you've got this Twitter shit waxed. We think we can sell Twitter. This is how far back we're going to our clients. Can you come help us? So I spent a bit of time with one or two smaller agencies. At the, they were smaller then. They're quite big now. And um, realized quite quickly they'd never a Twitter problem. They had a business problem. They were run by creatives. And if you take a creative person, 
They traditionally think differently from most business people. They hate sales. They hate accounting. They hate measurement and numbers. They don't like to be disciplinarian in their business with staff. Mm-hmm. So all the stuff that you need in the business, besides the actual output, they, they, they generally pushed back on. Yeah. And I saw a gap. So, and I always loved my coaching, my, my coach's business. At that time, he had about 12 clients and we were paying a couple of grand a month to belong to his thing. And I kept thinking, that's amazing. It's just him. And at the later years, a laptop. And he was earning a decent amount of money. So I always liked that because it was the absolute opposite of my business. Absolute opposite. My business was heavy and slow and very asset intensive. Bear that in mind. Back to 2007. Business is pumping. Things are flying. I'm not loving my business. Business is working without me. Um, should have been quite a happy place. Got onto Twitter. And then in 2008, there was the economic crisis. Now, people think that that only affected the banks. What it did was it pushed up certain things in terms of exchange rates. It pushed up certain commodity prices. And combined with that, Russia had fires. Now, this is the interesting discussion here. Okay. Our biggest purchase was edible oil, sunflower oil. We used to buy, I don't know, a couple of million rands a month with the sunflower oil. The Russia fires, basically, they put an embargo out that they would never, they wouldn't sell internationally because they had lost a lot of their crops. So they kept all the oil internally. That jacked the price up of edible oil. All of a sudden, our edible oil went from like three rand a liter to like 12 rand a liter. And our million rand purchase went to like six million rand purchase. And our retailers wouldn't take the price increase. So from running a very busy, mm. successfully healthy margin business, literally in the space of a couple of months, we were losing money month on month, like bleeding cash. It's crazy. And very little we could do about it um, besides fire our clients. And at that point, a lot of lessons learned, but we had a very big business built with a lot of overhead structure built in to support our current client base. And we would go, well, we're going to stop supplying and they go for it. But we knew what the impact of that would. So we kept thinking, well, hopefully it will change. Hopefully it will change. And just kept trading, hopefully trading out of it. But actually digging a deeper and deeper hole. I had a partner uh, for a period of time. And him and I were in Singata. We bought him out just around 2008. But we didn't sign any sureties. What we did is we handed over a property as surety, not personal. And we had a 10-year payment plan. We were going to pay him out for 10 years. 10 years. 10 years. So in the first 18 months, 12, 12 uh, 24 months, we paid him out whatever we were paying. But then we ran into cash flow problems because now we were chewing our, our money. So we said to him, we can't carry on paying you. Can we put a moratorium on, on paying you? And he was like, no, no. <laughs> pay me. So he then took back our single biggest property, which we weren't at that point paying rent on because we didn't need to because it was our property and started charging us rent. Uh. And and the wheels just started coming apart. So we tr- limped along for about two or three years. And in 2012, early 2012, we made the call. We're like, let's get rid of this thing. Um, sure. And what happened was we sold off parts. We liquidated a big chunk of the business. Opposition bought brand. Opposition bought vehicles. Um, fundamentally, I think by that point, we had scaled that down to about 150 staff, retrenched those staff, heartbreaking. Those are the staff that have been with us for 20 years in the business. Mm. Um, so a lot of horrible lessons learned. Um, but th- so I think what was interesting was, was that in terms of the partnership, and I'm giving you a lot of history here, was that in 2007 when things were really good, 
Tiger Brands approached us and wanted to buy one of the brands for 11 million rand. I still have the, the offer letter, which I always keep dear to me. And you didn't go through with it? And no, what happened was we were keen to go through with it because we were like, this is stupid money. Yeah. We weren't buying assets. We weren't buying stock, just the brand. Hey? And after about seven months of doing the, the DD, due diligence, uh-huh. they pulled out. But at that point, my partner went, oh, my God, there's real money in this business. And that's when the, the relationship deteriorated because he's suddenly going, well, I want to get this money out of the business now. And we were like, no. yeah, we, we, we both knew there was an unrealistic price. Why should I pay you that price? And that's when it just went south. Mm. Um, so anyway, got out of the business in 2012. Between 2010 and 2012, I personally lost about 12 million rands in that business. So, and, and, and I, I talk about it in public speaking, but it's, it's the, Best 12 million rand I've ever spent because it actually forced me to reinvent my life and get out of a place I actually hated, hated being. I hated being. I was miserable. I was burning through friendships and girlfriends and it was yeah. not a good place. So a very, very important lesson. You're going to ask me something. Yeah. Money's a renewable resource, isn't it? It is. Except when you lose a big chunk of it, it's, it's very, very painful. Plus that business was intrinsically who I was. People knew me as part of that business and for 17 years, you become that business. Yeah. And now all of a sudden, you've lost lost that business. The entire network that supported that business no longer wants to know you because you either owe them money or you've upset them or you've fired them or fired their family. Yeah. So all of a sudden, everything that you knew was no longer – was a big black hole. So wound the business down, lost a ton of money in that process. Um, paid off most of the creditors. There were a couple of – there was a couple of rands still outstanding, which most of the guys wrote off. Funny enough, the guys that we owed the most amount of money to are still my personal friends awesome. because, because the, the relationship was there for long enough. Yeah. So I managed to, to retain that. But I knew I didn't want to go back into that industry. And I always loved the coaching business. So, and, and there's two beautiful conversations. The first one was we closed the business in May. And in late February, March, before the May, I did something really stupid. For the first time in my life, I went to credit card debt Ish. and went skiing with my mates. To, to Switzerland, I think it was Switzerland or, or Italy, Italy. And a large conversation was around what am I going to do with my life and my business? And one of my friends, I don't know if you know Craig Rodney from Cerebra. Uh, yes, I do. Yeah. We were sitting on a ski lift and, and he said to me some very wise words and it took me a while to understand them, but he went, people like you and me have the innate ability to always make money. And I didn't believe what he meant at the time. But within a couple of months, I actually understood what he meant. The skills and my knowledge and my network and my confidence, I can make money doing anything anywhere. Um, So that combined with a little dinner with some mates where I literally was like, guys, in the next two, three weeks, we're closing the business down. What should I do? And they were like, you'll be fine. And I was like, yeah, but I'm not going to be fine. And they were like, well, how much money do you need to survive? And I'm like, well, if I don't lose all all my assets, I need 10, 12 grand a month to break even. And they were like, spilly? 10, 12 grand will hire you. Don't, <laughs> don't worry. Okay. Um, and I needed friends for support and just perspective. Took three months off and started coaching and very quickly went into the, the quite a particular niche of the agency media space because two reasons. Again, creatives really bad at running a business and the world around that business is changing so rapidly. Mm. The guys don't know how to cope. Yeah. So. Interesting conversations, plus the digital space, pretty much four years ago, if you put your head up and went, I have a digital agency, you are going to make money. 
Um, so the, the conversations were more around how do I manage the growth and manage cash flow and find staff more than we're going to close, which aren't conversations I like to have. So selfishly, it suited me. What it's done is put me in a position which, interesting enough, in a very short period, I have a very, very deep understanding of the South African marketing landscape. Um, I know what's working and what's not working. I understand what the behemoths are doing wrong and blows me away. They still have a business, but I don't believe they will in many, many, many years to come. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, the agency model as it exists is broken. It's completely flawed in terms of everything they do, how they do it, their costing models, everything, their pricing. Um, and I like the underdogs. So I, I, I've worked with some of the biggest thousand-man agencies in this country right down to the one- and two-man teams, and I like to back the small guy. Yeah. So the big thing is that my coaching is a, is a combination of coaching and, and consulting. That's not pure coaching. Um, I would love – love to give some money to some of my clients and actually get involved in their business because I can see these guys are going to make money. As soon as I do that, I'd probably piss off the other clients. So <laughs> I've, I've managed to resist that temptation. Um, but fundamentally, I've, I've, I love what I do now. Like I get up every morning and, and even though today I'm a bit sick, a bit fluey, I, I still get to work. I enjoy the conversations. I learn from my clients. I teach my clients. Um, and it took me a very short period of time to realize that even though I grew up thinking, who would want to be a teacher? Like, teaching is stupid. Why would you want to be a teacher? It also doesn't come naturally to many people. Well, the funny thing was is that very, very early on, I, I, there were a couple of people that had particular problems in their businesses. And I was like, well, why don't you just do it this way? Which seemed completely obvious to me because we'd done it so much in my business. And you could see the lights turn on. Plus, the entrepreneurial space. I, I don't do any corporate, big corporate work. And I deal with the owner in the entrepreneurial space is because I can go, have you done X, Y, and Z? And they go, oh, that's a good idea. And I'll see them in a month, in a month and they've done X, Y, and Z and it's worked or it hasn't worked. But the, the pace in which the guys can adopt and implement versus a corporate is unbelievable to me. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to get involved in climbing corporate dollars and the red tape that goes within, within that space. Yeah. So I've now spent my day speaking to fairly young. I mean, I say that I've got a couple of like 60 year old clients, but Probably vast majority, 25 to 35-year-olds, um, and mostly, again, media, market, digital tech space. Cool. Helping them grow their businesses and, and develop and, and, and help them achieve what they want. I don't set that, that, that tone. They decide what the growth is in their business, and I help them achieve that with the academics of running a business. Awesome. seems to me that uh, you should be my coach. Uh, Pleasure. <laughs> with what my plans are for next year. But let's talk about coaching more broadly because I think there's a difference between consultants and a coach. Sure. So many people, I used to be a management consultant at Accenture, traveled around the world doing basically digital and systems and tech and so forth. And it's people generally don't like consultants. Mm. On the other hand, you've got coaches. I think for me, the difference between a management consultant and a coach is that a consultant will tell you what to do, whereas a coach is a slightly different partner and I use the word partner deliberately mm -hmm. because they are a partner and they are there to influence your decision making not make that decision making for you sure right so what should I look for in a coach okay so the, the, let's just break there's a third part that you've left off is, okay. the, is the mentor oh, so right, a lot of yeah. guys have mentors and fundamentally mentors can be different things to different people but you're not a mentor are you I'm not a, so I mentor one or two people absolutely they don't pay me Okay, so so for me, the, the, one of the fundamental difference between a mentor and a coach is a coach is a paid for relationship. Okay, 
it's a business practice where a mentor is someone that can help you similar to a coach, but it's more of just someone that's been there, done that, giving you advice, mm. soundboard. Um, now, the other thing which is really important here is that there are two fundamental kinds of coaches in this traditional coaches in this in this world, okay? And they're b- fundamentally broken down into a European model and an American model. No South African model. Well, you can determine, you can be anywhere in the world and adopt one of those two kind of things. Now, the reason why there's the American model and the European model is that besides the coaching federation, which is a very particular way of coaching, which is what most coaches belong to, I don't, is that the Americans are shit scared of being sued. I'll yeah. give you advice, you sue me. It's that whole culture over there. Though. Absolutely. So, so what you'll find is the coaches in America are very much around not giving advice. They are very much around helping, um, helping you understand your problem, helping you find your own solution, and standing on the sidelines and watching you make the decisions. They don't use words like, I think you should, I feel you could. They don't use that, okay? Now, the, the European model is a lot softer. So there's a lot more of that consulting space and kind of like, I feel like you could do this. You know, why don't you try this and, and prompt some of those conversations more towards a goal rather than dictating it, dictating it or, or giving advice. Um, but the, both models are flawed for me. Now, you understand the agency space. Traditionally, it was your traditional agency or a digital agency. And over a period of time, there's something which has become a hybrid model in between, somewhere in between. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there. I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up, it's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. That's the integrated model well, yeah, or the full yeah. 360. Okay. Or well, the, the fact is, is that even that discussion has come to a point where we're an agency again. We just happen to offer everything. Forget about integrated. We can actually do offer everything. We're mm. basically just a marketing agency. Coaching, in my opinion, is now merging a little bit around those lines. Not obviously agency, but the fact that there's a hybrid model which exists in between. And it's based on the client's needs. And it's yeah. based on the conversation going, what do you actually want from your coach because some guys want pure traditional coaching they just want a soundboard they want someone to, to bounce ideas off they want someone to stand on the sidelines and rather rather than help them get their get their goals some people want pure consultants so I sit somewhere in between and it depends on the client and how I take them on as to, to what methodology I coach them by so by methodology can I give you an example please yeah so what I find is that a lot of smaller businesses will come to me going, I want to grow my business. But they haven't defined what growth is, why they want to grow it, or what the space looks like, or what their next five years will look like. So the most common practice that I use is we define a shareholder's mandate, which is what do you, the owner of your business, want your business to look like three years, 12 months, 90 days. 
I'm so glad you didn't put the five-year thing in there. No. Because that's almost impossible today. That's even three years, especially yeah, in Yeah, no, I was going to say that's possible. long. Yeah. But, but it's more around, do you want to build a lifestyle business or do you want to build it to sell? How aggressive do you want to be with money and staff? Mm. So it's, just, it's a more of a, let me understand what your motivation is and what your drive looks like for three years. Okay, let me, let's put it in perspective rather. I love that you're touching on motivation because that's so key. Huge. It's the, probably the biggest thing, actually. What? If, you un- if you understand anyone's underlying yep. motive, yep. then they become predictable in a way. Mm. And if you can shift that motivation left or right, that suddenly changes the trajectory, doesn't it? Okay, let's park motivation for a second now. Okay, we'll cool. talk about that interesting co- co- concept. But it's about what do your business look like in three years? Pop dream. Okay. What does it look like? The dream. And I call it, what is the dream for your business? Okay. Some guys will go, I want to play golf three times a week. And some guys will go, I want 100 million, 100 staff, three years. Very different goals. Okay. Mm. But I understand sort of where they want to go. Or it's about, actually, I just want a beautiful environment to work in. I want the best team and I produce beautiful work. That's what I want three years to look like. Okay. So it's, it's a dream. 12 months from now, we can get into some specifics. So, how big a team? What kind of product? How much revenue? Uh, what kind of clients? Like we can get into more specifics around what kind of systems, what kind of processes do you want? Once that's defined, we then go, what's the next 90 days look like? And that's all I talk about. What's the next 90 days look like in order to achieve the 12-month goal? That's a shareholder's mandate. I adopt that. So theoretically, I now own my client's business. I'm the owner. He is the sole or one of or the head employee in that business. So now I'm not objective. I'm objective to the shareholder's mandate, okay? Which means when he goes, I want to fire this client, I'm all emotional. I'm going, hang on, not your business. What's right for the business? Growth. Should you rather rescue the client? Let's talk about that. Rather than going, no, no, you're right. I I think he's he's being a dick. Let's fire him, okay? So it's about separating ownership from employment and keeping the employer delivering on work physical delivery of work based on what the owner wants, which is what he sets, yeah. but no longer excuse. There's no more excuse for, I don't want to do it because I'm the owner. No more. I'm the owner. You're the employee. What are you doing? And that's how we, that's how we manage the conversation. Okay. Mm. In that conversation will be, will be things like, how do I build a process? How do I do marketing? You know, what kind of policies do I need? Like, and we can talk about the academics of what needs to happen in the business on a month-to-month basis. Um, and then moving them towards their goal, not my goal. So they set the goal, but I help them achieve by delivering stuff in their business, their goal. So that's one methodology as an example, which isn't pure coaching. Because if you come to me and go, I need to interview for a, a mid-weight designer, what should I do? I'm going, I've got a template. Here's the template. Tweak it. But that isn't coaching at all. Yeah. Okay. But I'm going, why should you go spend 10 hours trawling the internet, figuring out how to work it like, what's the best? When I'm going, this is kind of tried and tested. Use this. Okay. So that's not coaching. So for me, I fit in between. Um, and I, I would absolutely fail on the Inter- International Coaching Federation tests completely. <laughs> um, and I'm happy with that. And I believe that that model is flawed to some degree. It's right for some people. No question about it. Not right for me. Not right for my clients. 
Can we talk about motivation? Okay. So, and that, I love that concept because it's almost like a shareholders agreement that you have between two business partners, yep. right? Which determines how the decision-making process gets governed. Mm. Uh, and one's instance, silent and one's operational, Yeah, basically. absolutely. Yeah, yep. all that kind of stuff. So, it's your insurance policy, really, at the end of the day. And oftentimes, it costs a lot of money. I think the most expensive shareholders agreement that, I ever paid for, that I've ever paid for was 25,000 pounds. Oh. I oh, know it's crazy, it's, it's, but it's it's worth it. I mean, it, it, we always joke about the fact that it's it's your your anti-nuptial contract. Hopefully, you sign it, it p- put it in the safe, never have to use it. Yeah, um, and we talk about those things often. I have partners coming to me to talk, and we talk, that's the first thing. Have you signed an agreement? No. Right. Let's talk about that. Let's start with that before anything. Let's understand what your relationship looks like. Um, so, back to motivation. Have, have you ever been exposed to like a, a motivational quadrant? No. Okay. Neither have I. I want to develop this. Okay? <laughs> because fundamentally what happens is that uh, there are two separate sets of, of motivation out there. So one is intrinsic and one is extrinsic or internal or external. Mm-hmm. And one is positive and one is negative motivation. Gotcha. Just break that down for yep. you. Right. So internal motivation is I want to be the best. I want to prove to myself. External is your boss going – if you do this, I'll reward you. If you do your homework, you can get dessert. That's external, okay? So internal's the way you think about things internally, and external is some kind of external motivation or some kind of carrot. Positive and negative are very important to me. So positive motivation is ownership, pride, growth, all the soft and fuzzy stuff, okay? Those are positive motivators. Money can be a positive motivator to a point, Negative motivators is generally money when you're becoming an, an egotistical maniac, when it's like never enough, just that's the driver. I don't care what, what degree. It's a negative motivator. Very powerful. So negative and positive can both be very powerful motivators, but one is positive, one is negative. Now, the one motivation that I come across with my clients very often is something my shrink once said I had was the big fuck you. Okay, And the big fuck you is I'm going to show someone I can do this. Ex-partner, ex-wife, mm. mother, father, brother, yeah. someone. Yeah. And it's going to go, oh, really? Let me show you how well I'm going to do this. Hugely powerful, incredibly negative. Yeah. Okay. Now, if you put that on a quadrant where positive on top, negative on the bottom, left intrinsic, right extrinsic, internal, external, Based on those things, everyone sits within one of those quadrants predominantly. Okay. So either you're positive and you're, you have negative motivations or you're negative and you have positive motivations or depending where you fit. Now, the reality for me is the guys that grow big businesses quickly, the guys that I would bond my house for and invest money have negative motivation and extrinsic. So it's the guys who the big fuck you for argument's sake. Those guys generally grow bigger, more powerful businesses. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying happy businesses. I'm saying they grow businesses quicker. You were that guy. I was that guy. Okay. No, and I know that. And if I look at, at my clients, and I have a lot of clients for the last couple of years, and my friends, the guys that grow beautiful businesses with really good cultures and really happy staff and really happy clients, which are in their own right successful businesses producing a good income, they have positive internal motivation. So it's about, I have pride in my business. I have pride in my staff. Um, I'm proud of being the owner. I want to be the best craftsman in terms of my position in the business. Like all those things, I want a happy environment. It's personal. It's internal. They grow good businesses. They grow them slowly. 
They may be more sustainable than the other ones. Yeah. But in terms of venture capitalist, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for the guy that's aggressive. He's angry. He's got a, proof to, a point to prove. And something on the outside is motivating him. That's where I put my money out of those four. Awesome. So it's it just it's my own personal opinion. Neither of them are right or wrong. But if it was a short-term return, I go with that. Mm-hmm. If it was a my business where I'm going to work in, then the other opposite diagonal corners where I put my money. Yeah. Happy place. Yeah. Uh, I'm probably in the fuck you quadrant. Actually. All the time or? No, no, not all the time. Just now at this very given point in time. Can't share why on air, but happy if you take you take me on board as a, yeah, as, as my coach. <laughs> it's the kind of thing we'll explore. But I totally understand it because you do want to. It's it's the short term motivation. It's like you're going to fucking make it rain regardless yeah. of yeah. what actually yeah. transpires yeah. or stands in your way. And in fact, if the way doesn't exist, you're going to fucking make the way. Mm. You know, it's that kind so, of. So the reason why it's important that you know that yeah. is as follows. And and let's talk about Bahman, Okay, so I wanted recognition from someone. Mm. And I went aggressively to, to get that recognition. At some point, many years later, I got a bit more mature. It became apparent to me that person was never going to pat me on the back and go, hey, buddy, well done, ever. And the moment I had that absolute realization, I lost some motivation. Mm. So that and money were the two, the two motivators for me. But at some point, I had the two cars. I had the convertible German car. I had traveled the world. I'd bought my second house. Like I'd done, I'd done shit, mm. okay? And now money wasn't so much fun anymore because mm. I wasn't going to ever buy a jet plane. I'm not that you know, aspirational. Like So money ran out and the other motivator ran out and all of a sudden I didn't give a shit. Mm. There's always a new ceiling, isn't there? Yeah, well, but, but it's also about your – so the fact is that I always knew that I hit my capacity in that business. I could have grown that business more. I could have made it much bigger. Didn't really want to. Didn't want the headache. Didn't, mm. didn't need the ego stroke. Didn't need the money. So – lost motivation mm. um, now what's interesting about the current business is that my motivation is still money like I still watch my numbers every month I still want growth I still want to make a profit but my motivation is coming home four out of five nights going good day that was a good day like I enjoyed that hard don't get me wrong I come home I'm buggered emotionally drained okay because all I'm dealing with is everyone else's problems yeah but I but I have moments of, of pure delight where I can see staff uh, staff clients like love the, the interaction and that's what I enjoy so I enjoy the one on one I enjoy the social aspect of the job and I don't believe that I've even come close to exhausting that as a, as a motivator mm. yet mm. so I, I know that I've got a long runway until, until I get to a point where I go I'm bored or I'm tired of this yeah it runs into the next conversation you wanted to talk about was the, the smaller entrepreneur space, the freelance space. Yeah. Before we get in there, yeah. I want to ask you a curveball yes. question. Yeah. So the backstory behind why um, Brent's actually in the studio with me today is because we have a mutual uh, friend called Rich Mulholland, mm. who you coach, as as I understand well, can it. Can we go back even further? Yeah, please. And that's so, to when the time when you're Rich, in the business, right? Well, Rich Mulholland and I shared our German business coach. No way. Yes. Now, uh, this, okay. and this is uh, so you've met Rich, and Rich is a big personality. You're like he's huge, great guy. But understand this: my prior, our my coach, our coach, had certain parameters in order for him to coach us as a, as clients. We had to be doing. We had to have more than thirty staff. We had to be doing more than three million rand turnover. So we he wouldn't touch small business. And this was in two thousand, okay, or well, ninety nine. So three million rand in ninety nine was a lot. Okay? Yeah. yeah. 
times seven okay. times seven. Yeah, it's it's a it's a substantial amount of money. Okay, so they were nice sized businesses. He came to us and went because we did we used to do group sessions as well. And he came and said to the group, he goes, "I've got this guy. He hasn't really got a business." But I want to bring him into the group. And we're like, no, 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 no. We had to qualify and we had to be vetted. And like, no, he's like, please, I want to bring him into next month's session. Just meet the guy. And we were all like, no, like he's not going to add value to us. We want value from the same size businesses. Anyway, eventually we agreed and in came Rich. And within an hour, we were like, how much money does he want? We want to invest in this guy. Like, we're like <laughs> all of us. We're like, this is the guy we want. And he defied all the rules. I mean, we, we were taught interview process you know this is the five steps this is the way you do it this is how you rank the client this is like the staff member this is the onboarding process Rich how do you interview staff well my two staff members I met at a punk rock club that had cool tats and like <laughs> I employed them and we were like it doesn't work you can't do that and yet he proved that you, you sort of can yeah um, so yeah So and I, I know Brent as well through through Rich okay. so so Rich and I have been very good friends. Rich is on that snowboarding holiday we do every year together as well. Um, and then about a year ago, Rich said to me, Spilly, I love you. You're the practical guy. Help me in my business. Um, and knowing Rich, he's got a million great ideas, but can't pick one. or can't. Pick. <laughs> so for me, I, I'm the guy that goes, let's look at those ideas. Let's pick one. Let's practically put together a plan and let's implement that. And that's why he uses me because I bring him back down to fundamentals of getting stuff done in his business. Okay. Let's talk about getting stuff done because in business, decision-making is everything, right? Yep. Make the wrong decision that winds you up in a lot of pain generally. Make a great decision and you're sitting flush, right? And very happy. So how do you approach influencing decision-making with your clients? So for instance, how would you influence my decision-making so, outside of that insurance policy? Okay. Well, doc. actually that always sits above the entire gotcha. conversation. So yeah. often the, often it's about going, well, what's right for the business? And then the answer is quite clear, but there, there are a few things. The first thing is, um, I'm trying to think of a stupid example. So we've got bottles of water on the table here. You're saying you want that bottle of water, and I'm saying, no, use this bottle of water. And I know this bottle of water is, is better for your business because I've seen it work better in other clients. And it can be apps. It can be staff. It can be members. It can be a whole bunch of, whole bunch of things. So it's my job to persuade you to make a better decision or at least give you the information to make the decision on your own but be informed of the decision. Okay. So even if you, even if I think you're making the wrong decision, often they actually work out, but I want you to go, what are the other options out there? Because often what happens is guys will go, I'm looking for an employee. I know someone. He's the guy. He's the guy. He's the guy. I'm like, how many other guys have you met? None. How do you know he's the guy? No, we like him. I'm like, but you haven't actually gone through the process of figuring out the other alternatives in the space. So for me, it's always about, if there's only one solution, then it's obvious, but there's always more than one solution. So let's understand the two options or many options before we make decision and make the most informed decision you possibly can. There's never the right decision, okay? Hindsight, beautiful, it was right or wrong. 2020. Okay, but as long as you're making the most informed decision and then, again, in the business, looking 12 months and looking three years is important. So I, I want to give you a really, really, really Interesting thing that came through in the last couple of weeks with one of my clients. Okay, go for it. Confidential, but I'm not telling who the client is. Particular client, very big business, they do queuing solutions. So when you stand in a queue and you get a ticket, 
from the machine yeah. and you pull that ticket and it goes, you're queuing and, you, and it works out where you should go to next and who the next teller is and how long you should be waiting for. Uh, they do that. Okay. Yeah. So they do the entire back end of that solution. So they're making decisions in terms of improving that product. Okay. And they're looking in the next 12 months how to improve that product. And again, listen, physical ticket, physical paper is stupid. If you're standing in, say, the FNB and you have an FNB app and we have a Bluetooth solution or a R Beacon solution, when you walk into this, to the, the retail store, it should ping your phone and go, Hey, Spilly, welcome to FNB. How can we help you? Excuse the wonderful thing. And then go, You're number six. Your teller will be teller three. Her name is Elise. Like, please speak to her. Okay, whatever that is. They're thinking that. But also understanding that I'm going, great, you're going to invest a lot of money in building that tech for the app, for the retail store. Yes. I'm going, when was the last time you stood in a bank queue? Both of them looked at me like, yeah, it's been a while. I'm going, so I get the fact that you're, you know, high LSM, let's use that as a, as a, as a in this country. Mm-hmm. But fundamentally, would you agree that the rest of the world and the rest of South Africa in the next five to 10 years are going to have smart apps, smartphones, and retail banking, physical space is going to die. And they look at me going, yes. What's wrong with your business plan? Because fundamentally, they're building for something that's going to become irrelevant. So yes, they can still milk this for a couple of years, absolutely. Mm. But unless they actually get out of that business, they're not going to have a business. Yeah. So it's also the perspective that I can give someone from outside the business where they're so involved on a day-to-day business, day-to-day basis in their business. They're like, they're so busy worrying about client and delivery and chasing money and product development and all those other bits and pieces that they don't have the opportunity to step out of their business and actually look at the market space and actually look long-term and know what are the major, and it comes down to often very basic SWOT analysis, very basic tools to understand what the risks are and, and why are you making certain decisions in their business. So, Things like SWOT, things like pest analysis. It's my job to teach them how to use those tools, and those are very simple ones. Yep. Use those tools effectively, and when making fundamental decisions in their business, go through that process. It's funny how entrepreneurs become so associated with their with their business that they can't – and I've been in a situation many times where you battle to make the right decision – uh, because you're so associated with it, and it's it's just such a funny thing for me. Um, Rich 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 always says, um, "You can't read the label from inside the bottle." Yes, that's right. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, it's a it's, great it's, analogy. There's, there's loads of those analogies out there, but it's a huge problem. So, a lot of my clients always go like, "You should call yourself perspective coaching," or because a lot of what the, a lot of what I sell is just pure perspective, mm. and it's just the fact that I can question things from the outside without offending anyone. Between partnerships, I can say you're being a dick. No, you're being a dick without offending anyone mm. because I'm not actually involved in that business at that level. Um, so come, come back to answer your question in terms of how do I help them? Information. I have a full-time researcher as well who, who can find case studies on my papers to help inform the decision. Perspective. And then putting in a, a trial and error A-B testing if, if we both aren't sure what the right answer is to go, right, let's do this. Here's some data. Let's, let's check, is it working, isn't it? And very quickly understand within a couple of weeks or a couple of months, if this isn't working, right, let's do alternative. So they, they don't just go barreling forward and, and not actually checking, they're controlling the, the, measure, the measurement around it. Yeah. Um, and I'm a big believer in measure everything, toilet paper, coffee, right through to the numbers <laughs> in your business, everything. Gotcha. Want to know. Let's talk about, what we're actually talking about here is very much the 
outer game of success. The sure. external motivations, yep. I guess, would fall into that category. But then you've got the inner game stuff as well, where we also touched on it with regards to motivations and so forth. But as a coach, do you only focus on the business side of the coin or is it the personal side of the coin so too both because that's you have to have that full sure. picture right so, so so when i'm pitching at a client i talk about what is it i do and if you never had a coach or a shrink or anything in your life the value that they bring to you is very difficult to explain unless you've actually been exposed to it gotcha so yeah. so often it's easy to sell a client on the academics which is what's the interview process how do we build that what are the hundred questions guys go oh, i need that easy to sell but during that discussion what I talk about is I talk about the left side which is the psychology of running a business and the psychology is my wife doesn't like me working Saturday mornings how do I deal with that okay. well I can't relate to my kids so there's a whole bunch of yeah, yeah okay um, or I'm burning through my relationships my friends and my family because I'm working so hard mm. and how I'm do drinking I find too much I, I mean I have clients confiding stuff into me that's frightening in terms of them having affairs with their secretaries and uh, you know and and I've got to try to remain objective as the owner of the business to go well how's that going to impact the business I'm not a shrink so I can't get involved in marital you know uh, the psychology of, of marriage or managing that relationship I'm not, I'm not a counselor okay so at a certain point I draw a line and go, you need to go and see a therapist or you need to go see a lawyer or you need to go see an accountant because I, at a certain point, I'm not that qualified or it's beyond my 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 legal scope of where what I should be doing with your business. So there are points where absolutely palm that off. Um, but I do absolutely talk a lot around motivation, inspiration um, and helping guys sort of understand that and be inspired. I have jokes aside. I have clients who will phone me on Sunday night after car plants going spilly. I don't want to go work tomorrow. Yeah, sure. and, and then I'm going to go right. Listen, let's put the plan together. Let's let's talk about how we get you out of this business. And at least let's work work towards that. Mm. So because not everyone loves their job, hey, it's it's a it's a big problem. Mm. Guys stumble into businesses and then hate it yeah. for whatever reason. Don't you think, or do you subscribe rather to the fact that you should be thinking about your exit strategy from day one? Yes. So build it to sell it. Okay. That's what Always. I'm interested in because, Always. you know, I think any business has a longevity mm. in terms of its enjoyment. Mm. It's great building things, not so great running things. That's you. Is it just me? Yeah. Okay. So, but so, I'm, I was talking for me. Yes, yeah. I totally. Yes, sure. absolutely guilty as charged. Yeah. But in my experience, like entrepreneurs are great at starting things. Many aren't so great at running things. Sure. Yeah. Okay. okay. So the first thing is that let's just look at traditional working environments from two three generations ago. You had lifers. You join a business and you spend your life as an employee in that business. That personality trait hasn't gone away. The world around it's gone away, okay? But some people want to start a business to be in that business forever. And they're comfortable with that. So that they can build a, a decent business. It doesn't have to be world-changing, you know, innovation, uh, Instagram 2.0. It can just be a decent business that gives them a nice lifestyle, a decent salary forever. Now, that's something that's important to know. We talk about the three-year goal. You, if you were my client, you'd be right. Three to five years Retirement money, okay? A lot of guys are actually, no, I've built and worked other businesses. I've tried other things. I just want a business that gives me 50 grand a month with a bit of a, a bit of a bonus once a year forever. So 
understanding that's really important. Mm. I still say to them, build it to sell it. Two reasons. First thing is, if you really want lifestyle, you don't want to be opening and closing the front door every day. So even if you're a lifestyle business, you want automation and people and systems to run that business without you. Okay. Mm-hmm. Number one. So, and, and that's also the best time to sell your business yeah. is when you're stepped away from the business and you're running it via SMS on the beach. And when it's ready to scale, right? Because the only way you're sitting on that beach is if you have those systems in place. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, the, the sad thing is, and you'll know this coming from the sort of industry you come from, is that there's been a huge spate of, of buying of smaller businesses in this country by the, 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 the multinational networks. All those guys, all of them sold too early. All of them. Now, they sold too early because they had such long earnouts. Now, a lot of those guys, two, three years into their earnout, are going, I fucking hate my life. I should never have done the deal. We've made so much money, we could have kept the business. And, and, and. Now, the reality, they wouldn't be having that conversation if the earnout was three months. If they went, she has the keys. I don't actually work in this business. I am the silent, silent 100% shareholder in this business. I'm out. You don't need me. That's a successful sale. Yeah, okay. I agree. When the guys get tied in for three to five years and, and the corporate machine gets shoved down their throat. It's horrible, man. It's horrible. I mean, also you get the targets you have to achieve no, no, and no, it affects I mean, your earnouts. And, and, the and guys, it's a whole mess. And they're entrepreneurs. They don't understand what that, what that means. Yeah. Like, and they get sold on this. So first prize is build it to sell it. If someone comes and waves enough cash in your face, even if you want a lifestyle business and it's enough, then walk away from it. No problem. It's your decision. But you want the option. Uh, important word. You want the option of selling that business at the right time. So a lot of my friends have now sold businesses to those those New York global networks. And and I kept saying, you sold it six to eight months too early. And they're like, wow. I'm like, you should have taken some money, put a proper MD in place, stepped away from the business, and then gone – I'm happy to do a four-year earn-out, but I don't actually work in the business because you wouldn't feel the pain. Yeah. Um, so, like, you know, and the, they all did very well for themselves, and I'm not, I'm not knocking them, but the fact was if they had managed to plan it a bit better, would have been less pain on, on the exit. Mm, hence yeah. the why it's valuable to have a coach, right, yeah. for that perspective. Possibly, yeah. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. Um, and not get, not to get distracted by the people waving money around. A lot of guys spend three, four months going, oh, my God, we're going to sell, we're going to be rich, and then it doesn't happen. Oh, my God, we're going to – and then what do we do? Take the eye off the business. Yeah. Um, I was interviewing Zach George. He's the founder of Barclays Tech Lab. I don't know if you know him. No. Uh, anyway, he's a great guy to get on your radar. Um, but he specializes in accelerating startups and he was talking about exiting of startups and how literally what you were saying now that the guys exit too early. Yeah. Like they get to 10 million rand a year run rate, maybe 20, 30, 40, 50, and then suddenly they get bought. Mm. And he was saying that if Uber or Airbnb was a South African startup, they would have exited too early. And he was saying guys shouldn't do that. So that's completely so, echoing what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, the, and the funny thing is, is one, or two, one or two of my clients who have just done seed funding internationally didn't know what what the, the norms are. So they actually built way past MVP. They went way past that. They've got not even proof of concept. They've got physical banks buying from them. And then went, right, let's go raise some money. Locally, no one actually has cash. or no, Everyone's so bloody averse. So they went to the States and raised money. And my understanding was that normally seed capital around there is hundreds of $250,000. It's like, you know, that's the first, first drop in the ocean. So they went and went, wanted to raise $650,000. And Oaks were like, that's not seed, that's Series A. And he's like, no, but it's, it's the first round. We're still 100% owned. And because they had gone so far and had proof of their business actually working, 
they were basically batting away investors. They were just going, who do we want? Which is the best guy besides money with the biggest network? So that they, they waited long enough and they had absolute freedom where if you go, I have an idea for a business and you need money, they own you eh, from day one. They yeah, want, yeah. they want equity is the most expensive. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and a lot of guys do that. So there, there is often the right time to do it and the right reasons. Often there's swapping partners out or general growth opportunities or you really need cash flow to grow the business. There are reasons to do it and it is different. But uh, the longer you can be sole, you know, independent, like, Mm-hmm. The, the the better it is. Yeah, absolutely. I want to pick up on the term you you, re, you mentioned just now about lifestyle. Yeah. If you want a lifestyle business, yep. and so I think that's an interesting segue into freelancing, sure. right? Where people are like, well, fuck my boss, I don't want to deal with authority, yeah. Yeah. or I want to work my own hours, and all these kind of things. And they say, hey, fuck it, we're going to resign, and we're going to start a lifestyle business, mm. and they're going to go freelancing now. Yep. The freelancing market, as you're well aware, has been growing a hell of a lot, mm-hmm. both globally and locally here. Yeah. And is this notion of lifestyle business a load of bullshit? Because if you think about freelancing in principle, right? Yes, you're starting a business. Yes, you have those potential benefits. But the hardest thing to scale Right. And I suppose this goes back to your motivation, mm. but the hardest thing to scale is yourself. Sure. And if you're selling you, not and a time. product and yeah. time and yeah. hours, which is a fucking horrible business to be in. I mean it, yeah. <laughs> Sorry for you, yeah. but you feel the pain, right? Yeah. Like you can only take like 12 <coughs> clients or I don't know, but there's a number that you know sure. is your optimum level where you can still provide a value, a valuable service, but also get significant value yourself, mm. right? So that value exchange holds true. So, and it's the same thing with these online marketing ideas. You know, well, if I start an online business, I get a whole bunch of passive income and I'll sit on a beach with a mm. laptop drinking pina yeah. coladas all day. Name me someone. Yeah, exactly. Like how many guys do you know that actually got that right? No, no one. Yeah. But this is my point. So, Ferris, maybe, so, like. so I guess, and this is why, and we're just, you know, teeing this whole thing up before we started uh, recording. Whereas for me, if you're starting, a, even if you use the term freelancer, mm. you're still the business owner, right? The 100%. freelancer, to your point, completely applies in the creative category. Sure. But in your world, you know that, for instance, if I was going freelancing, which I'm not, but I'm saying mm. if someone were to do that, mm. that you're starting a business, you're becoming an entrepreneur. Yeah. So the implications of of that are far-reaching and especially true in this notion of, well, I'm going to start a lifestyle business because, yes, you get different types of entrepreneurs in terms of their motivation, mm-hmm. right? But for me, I just feel that if you're going to take freelancing seriously – and you're the expert here. Yeah. But if you're going to take freelancing or being a business owner seriously, you need to almost reevaluate what your motives are mm-hmm. and almost park this lifestyle business thing. Because I do know freelancers uh, who work eight months a year, and that's great for them because that's just what their motivation mm. is. But again, that for me isn't really sustainable because… Well, okay. So, so let's, let's do two things. Firstly, let's just talk about my business. Okay. Fundamentally, I'm a freelancer. I have a couple other coaches that work underneath me which are freelancers. I have two full-time employees. But I'm a freelancer. I sell my time and I sell a package of time. But what you've done, sorry if I can interject, yes. is you package that. Okay. But, because but, but, you're not selling time and hours necessarily. No, I'm not selling time and hours. But, but understand yeah. this. So… Based on my history, where my business was a seven-day, 24-hour machine, my choice – so I've chosen a lifestyle business. Don't get me wrong. I work my ass off, 
but I have the option to turn it off at any point. Having a baby in three weeks, yeah. I'm taking five weeks off. I don't care. What do your okay? clients say? About what? About taking the five weeks off. Well, so normally December, most of my clients piss off anyway. In fact, I actually only run an 11-month model. Oh, cool. Generally. I mean, most of my clients by mid-December to mid-January, they've checked out mentally. Nothing's really going to happen in the business over that period. One or two of the tech businesses might, but nothing fundamental. And this country shuts down. Let's, let's be honest. Yeah. So, not a big issue. The fact is that I've also picked an 11-month model. Like I'm comfortable with the fact that when I go back in January, I'll do two clients a day. So I'll work three to five hours a day. That's a lifestyle choice. I can ramp that up or drop it as I want. It's the freedom of thought. Okay. It's the, it's the, the, the idea that I have the option is what my lifestyle is. Okay. I probably work harder than I've worked in a long time, but I have the option. It's my choice, not someone telling me to clock overtime yeah okay so that's often what people think about when they, when they come to to lifestyle is that initially they think oh it's cool i'm gonna work from coffee shops i'm living i'm wearing my pajamas all day long i'm like bullshit that doesn't that doesn't exist i don't believe in this country that freelancing is easy it is hard work you have to have the mindset of knowing that there's no salary it's a big adjustment if you've been employed for many many years to suddenly go every month may be different some months will be great some months won't be great you're going to over deliver you're going to overpromise and underdeliver some months. Like, it's messy. You need a, a particular mindset to be able to do, uh, be a successful freelancer. Um, and to your point, though, is, is that the big thing for me is that in this country, if you say freelancer, as I said to you earlier, everyone thinks of creative. You're a writer, you're a designer, you're somewhere in that, in that field. But internationally, freelancers are recognized as any profession. And that's what's happening slowly in this country. If you look at, there are businesses out there called, like, there's a business called Caveat Legal. And Caveat is a, it's an online app. I want this kind of lawyer. I want to pay this kind of rate. It's basically like freelance.com. And they will then put you in touch and earn a bit of a com off that, only independent. So it's a one-man show, often two or three-man small, small practice. And they're independent lawyers. They're independent professionals. In the States, they call them opera's. Okay. And so, because freelance has got a little bit of a negative, it's like, oh, well, you're, you're a freelancer. It's like consultants. Yeah. Where if you're a professional, and some of these guys are, like physically professional, um, but they're still freelance. So, that's happening globally. It's starting to happen here. Second thing is that freelancers have always been the juniors. It's always been perceived as guys that left school or varsity or had two or three years worth of work experience and got out and earned and now freelancing. It's for kids. What's happening now is that the 40 to 50-year-old mature person with lots of experience and proper degrees is now going, hang on, I can probably earn more than my salary and work less hours and steps out into the freelance market. And that's happening more and more. So what's happening is that traditionally it was always we'll feed the bottom end work to freelance and the top end, we own that talent. We're now slowly but surely the top end's being freelanced out as well. Do you think that anyone will be employed in the future? Yes, because there are still line production kind of businesses. Absolutely. But the People, specialist skills, for instance, take creatives. Yeah. Do you think they will all be freelancing at some point? No. No? Uh, they will always be – because firstly, there are always people that need to be employed. Mm. They need to be sitting and, and told what to do. Um, and there's always going to be hubs of people that need to actually work together on a permanent basis. Mm. So you'll find that like 
I, I, do, I do believe that the the massive heavy agencies mm-hmm. are going to start dissipating, but I don't believe that that everyone will always be completely independent. I, I do think that there's going to be a lot more remote working, permanently employed remote working, definitely. So okay. that, that that might start happening more and more. It is happening, um, but the other thing which is really important is that we get, we get into the agency space here. But traditionally, what happened was was we used to employ the heavy, hard thinkers at the top, the expensive people, and outsource the bottom. Okay, a piece of design work, piece of copy, just get a freelancer in. And what's happening now internationally is they're going. We want to employ those ten grand freelancers, bring them in permanently, so we have all those little rights at the bottom, and we're now outsourcing the thinking, the expensive stuff, and that's much better, because what happens here is that if you know that your your thinking, you can go shop that around. From a strategic perspective, and get the best of the best in a particular field. It's bang for your buck. You'll be much better at your at your delivery, and the the commodity of producing the creative work at the bottom will pay cheap for, and that's what's happening. So the the the, the implementation of digital, the the creation of of content with its uh, with its written design video, that's been commoditized. It's getting cheaper and better all the time. Mm. You don't want to be in that market, okay? Mm-hmm. You can be in that market as a freelancer, lots of work. But you actually want to be a freelancer who sells expensive thinking at the top because there's a lot to work for that. And I believe that's a better business model if you're going to go the freelance market. Okay. Let's talk about the business model side of things and value propositions specifically. Okay. So there's obviously a number of options in play. So uh, you could, for instance, do a three-month fixed-term contract at 100 hours a month yeah. times uh, whatever it is, a 1,000 rand an hour. And the buyer can either burn all those hours right up front mm-hmm. or maybe burn, burn them, you know, three days a week or whatever the case is. So that's one option. The other way to do it is to say, well, there's a project fee. So you say for these, for this project, based on these deliverables, you pay me a lump sum mm-hmm. at the end of each deliverable that's handed over to the client. Um, is What's the best way to know? So interesting enough, I sent out a, a questionnaire to 64 local agencies event pr above the line through the line b- below the line digital traditional content the whole lot a mixed bag about the freelance market and i basically sent them i think it's about 18 or 19 questions around all these things we're talking about and one of them was i would prefer my, my freelancer to charge me our rate half day day rate project rate content delivery rate monthly retainer and like Categorically, they want a project rate for delivery of the, the work. Give me the price. How, I, I don't want to manage your hours. I don't want to even think about that from an admin perspective. It's a pain in the ass. Here's the project delivered. Here's the, here's the brief. Tell me how much you're going to charge me to deliver it. If we can afford it, we'll buy it. And make sure you deliver it on the right date. That's all. But categorically, agencies from terms of freelancers don't want to buy hours. Mm. Absolutely not. It's funny that when they sell time and hours, right? Well, some of them do, some of them don't. So what's happening now is that if you look at, um, I'm trying to give you an example here, but let's take social media businesses, guys that offer social media community management. Okay, yeah. So a couple of years ago, you could sell someone, a community manager, for 50 grand a month. We'll manage your Facebook page for 50 grand, okay? That's just managing the community, smoke and mirrors. That's come down to a point where it's either being internalized into the brand or everyone's going, Are you, have you gone mad? Like, that's three people's salary. Well, why would I pay that? So what the business have started doing going, well, we'll create content for you and we'll charge you 
20 pieces of content for the 20 days of delivery and we'll throw in community management for free. Okay. So what they're doing is that they, because they realize that's actually not where they make their money. Like you're not paying for community managers. It's crap. So they are productizing the retainer. Instead of going, you're buying X amount of hours of community management. We're going, we'll produce content for you. And let's say it's a 30-day package. We'll produce 30 pieces of content and it's 10 videos and 10 written and 10 designed. And you'll pay us X. We'll produce that. We'll deliver it over this period as some sort of content calendar. And we'll throw in the actual service fee for free. Built in, obviously. But then the guys are going, we actually aren't selling time material. So we're producing the cost. The way we do our cost estimate for our client is based on how long will it take us to produce those 30 hours. That's the budget which we work it internally. Client doesn't see that anymore. Mm. Now we go, it's 100 grand. Here's your fee. Thanks for coming. Client can see what they are getting um, in terms of the deliverable rather than going, well, how many hours did you spend on this? It's actually going, we'll produce X amount of pieces for you. Here are your pieces. Pay us. Gotcha. Much cleaner. Alrighty. So, so some, it doesn't happen across every business and every single, you know, every single service. Sometimes you have to charge hours um, or hours over and above. But if you can get to a product and price scenario, much easier to run. Gotcha. And then you manage time internally. You're still producing in hours. How, how do you get to a point where you can start to charge more for your services? So bundling services together, adding value. Also understanding the, the the chain of how things happen. So let, let's talk about the marketing, research, then strategy, then creative, then implementation, and, and on. So it depends where you are. If you're at the bottom end of the chain, difficult to get up to strategy. You want to sell strategy up front. He who owns the, 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 the thinking, yeah. owns the client. Um, so understanding that's really important. And then also making sure that often what happens is that the guys are in a chain of 10 possible options, but they own two or three, but those two or three actually aren't linked. So every time they, they want to add a new service, they're actually adding a service that isn't directly complementary to the existing service. It's in the chain, but they're kind of going, well, we can do this. I'm trying to give an example here, but like it's, um, we can do strategy and we can do your AdWords for you. Okay. And they go, that's a great offering. And I'm going, no, it's not because everything in between is broken. If you said to me, we can do strategy and we can do content plan or strategy and, and creative or whatever that is, they fit together. Therefore you can charge more. So a lot of guys start businesses with partners going, what's your skill? My skills are AdWords. Great. What's your skill? Strategy. Let's start a business. I'm going, that's a bad idea. <laughs> like make sure that they're comp that they sit side by side. Okay. When they are, you can charge more. Secondly, understanding the, the, the appetite of the market is important. So, when it comes to pricing strategy, the example would be, let's take my business as an example. It's simple. When I started the business four years ago, I charged for my first client 450 rand an hour. Why? I was still figuring out exactly what it is that I was going to do. And I had no idea what the right price was. Okay. So I started 50 an hour and I sold two hours at a time. So it was a nine hour package. Then eventually I dropped the, the package from two hours because it was a little bit too intense for my clients down to an hour and a half. So my rate went up, obviously, because mm. my price didn't change. Every quarter, systematically for four years, I've added 500 Rand for new business to my package. Every quarter. So over a year, I added two grand to my number. So over four years, I'm now sitting around the 7,000 Rand for my hour and a half. Okay? It's a package. It's not just hour and a half. It's the month of access. But I've been whacking up the price and measuring the nose. 
Okay, that's all I'm doing to understand what the market will take. Until someone says "fuck you," basically. But I get it all the time. <laughs> but that's okay as well because I also realise I've only got X amount of hours. So what it's doing is, and it comes back to the freelance discussion, is that I have a lot of freelancers coming to me going, "Hey, Spilly, help me with my business." And I'm going, "Firstly, I price seven grand," and they go, "Can't afford you." I'm going, "I'm sorry, go somewhere else." Yeah, so okay? no. So it's a filter. Secondly, the guys that can afford the seven grand generally have bigger businesses have bigger problems, far more stimulating for me. Okay, so personally, it's, it's, it's satisfying. Um, and they will see value in me because they know that my time is important versus, well, I'm only paying 400 and if I cancel it, eh, so what? So you've got to figure out what the right price for your market is. If there's enough work out there and you're smart enough, pricing is, is, is you can just keep going with pricing to a point, obviously. But the fact is that how you market yourself, how you sell yourself, how you deliver yourself, understand the value you deliver to your client, you can charge whatever you want. And, and let's talk my business. So a lot of guys go, seven grand an hour, like that's, no one charges that, okay? It was an hour and a half. And I'm going, let's talk about Tony Robbins. Do you know Tony Robbins? Yeah, I do okay. very well. Okay. So I don't prescribe to what he does, but about two, three years ago, he put out a little talk on, on online and he went... I'm proud to say I have eight clients. Eight. Okay. They each pay me a million dollars a year for access. And I'm going, that's a good gig. That's yeah. a really good business. Okay. So how much are they paying a month? Uh, $80,000. How much time are they actually getting from him? Some months they don't use him. So what's the, what's the, the limit in terms of my pricing? If I can get myself to be marketed the way Tony Robbins does his, and it's t- taken him years and years and years to get there, that's the cap in my opinion. How many people pay that? Very few. But that's fine. Mm-hmm. I'd be quite happy with two or three clients paying me a million dollars a year, never mind eight. Mm-hmm. So understanding the market appetite for price and understanding the value delivered to your clients, there's no such thing as the right price. Can we touch on the sales strategy side of things? Yeah. How does a freelancer develop a sales strategy, for example? Keeping in mind, you mentioned earlier about you know face to face being sure. the still primary. the best way to sell. Yeah. So, in most of my businesses, I speak about two things. Okay, sales all the time, and then the staff, the people element. Okay, um, and the businesses that which do well, whether they're freelancers or whether they're a hundred hundred man agency, they're run by salespeople or by people who understand sales. Okay. So often you find that the best creative businesses have a non-creative person at the head, an accountant or a salesperson, because they just go out and flog the business. Okay. They know how to sell the business. So sales, firstly, hugely important. For a small business like a freelancer, let's just say a freelance designer, okay, how do they build a sales strategy? A couple of very simple steps. Firstly, understand what your service is. Understand what your differentiator is. Now, we talk about USP. Let's talk about the USP. Understand what that is, what makes you unique. Now, what makes you unique, there's a lot of guys similar to you, but there's something about you that makes you unique. Often, it's just you. You're unique, okay? We then decide, once you've got that, who the perfect client is. So, we build a client avatar. Once we've got that, we build approach, we, we build sales lists. So, if you're in business, you've got existing clients and old clients. If you're brand new, there's a wish list. We build the wish list, 
and go, right, what's the best way to get meetings with the wish list? Are we cold calling? Are we emailing? Are we desk dropping? Are we standing outside waving banners outside the office? What's How are we getting the attention to get the meeting? And let's set a target for number of meetings per month. And there's obviously some detail to that. So existing business, wish list. Existing clients, upsell, cross-sell. Understand what that looks like. Get referrals. Old clients, go speak to the old clients, the ones that you like or who still like you. <laughs> Build those lists, put together a plan of how we're going to actually manage them, put them in a CRM system, off we go. And often with my clients, this is stuff that I hold them accountable to, going, right, you want to go and sell, you want to aggressively grow. I want you to have five meetings a month with wish list, people you've never worked with before, five meetings a month with your existing clients to upsell and give me two referral leads, which means you actually have to go to a meeting going, who else do you know? Internally, within the organization, auntie, uncle, external, I don't care. Get me referrals, go over referral meetings every month. So we're actually drilling down into our existing clients, actively hitting a target of number of meetings rather than just numbers. Mm. Um, so with existing, existing, existing clients, it helps with account management to make sure we're in their face. But new business, so if you're just going, I'm starting a brand new business and I want off you go, I'm going, right, once we know what you're selling, what makes you unique, understanding all those differences within your business and who you want to target and be specific in terms of an industry, now we can do your marketing. Because now your marketing needs to feed and support your sales initiative, not the other way around. If you're incredibly well-funded and you want to throw tons of money at Facebook and Google, then cool, marketing can be your route to market with pleasure. But most freelancers don't have that. So it's me getting them to go, I'll cold call or email. That's generally the way to go. Social media, desk drops, there's other ways of getting people's attention, and some are more successful than others. Some take longer, some cost more money. But fundamentally, sales for me is a strategy. It's ticking boxes, number of emails, number of meetings, number of quotes, number of yeses and no's, what the no's are, why they're saying no, how do we adapt the sales call, copy and paste, and manage those conversations forever. Hmm. So even if the guy's going no, it's no for now. What did you say to him? What did he say to you? Three months, new approach. Yeah. And just keep pushing that. This is such great advice. And it's all this, it's all stuff that you offer as part of your uh, freelance MBA package, mm. right? It's called What the Freelance. What the Freelance. And you got a book coming out, which you mentioned earlier. Yeah, probably by May next year. And lessons learned. I mean, you know, it's like, hey, let's write a book. And you don't actually know what the hell you're getting into until you actually write a book, uh, the process and, and how long it can actually take. So we're currently through, we're in, we're in second round edit and design. It'll be hard copy initially, um, in conjunction with the course, which is very much a, it's a 30 hour, 10 nights over five weeks, three hours a pop. And it is everything we talked about motivation through to sales strategy, marketing strategy, accounts and measurement, account management, taking briefs, interrogating briefs, uh, process and, and policies, uh, tools within your business from project management to timekeeping to social media, like everything you need to know how to run a business, tax, tax laws, the whole shebang. Awesome. You come in, you know nothing, you come out, you know the fundamentals of how to run a small business. Okay, fantastic. Um, Brent, I'd love to shift gears and, uh, to the second part of the interview now. Sure. Um, keeping in mind, you don't actually know what the format of the show is. Okay. But, uh, I'm scared. The, this is the fun part. It's some rapid fire questions and yeah, let's see how you do. Okay. <laughs> okay, cool. So if you could put your entrepreneurial journey onto a billboard, what would that billboard say? Love what you do. See, that was rapid enough. Okay. <laughs> what three things are you not great at? Um, managing my clients 
in terms of account management. So like I'm, I'm quite bad. I'm very good. At, I'm great at sales, but I'm actually quite bad at managing them on a monthly basis in terms of keeping selling to them. I feel bad. So I could upsell a bunch of stuff to my clients. I don't. Often they come going, do you know where we can get a, you know, a course on? And I go, well, I can actually do that for you. Why don't you tell me? I don't know. Like I'm bad at that. Okay. So I'm bad at that ongoing sales. You said three things. Mm. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very good at starting marketing. I'm very bad at the follow through. So I get excited about, oh my God, we're going to do a blog post a week and we're going to punt it and little, unless I actually outsource that, I don't do it myself. So I know the value of it. I just get lazy. Um, and I'm really bad at actually doing my numbers. I really enjoy it. Like I love looking at my spreadsheets, but like for me to go and actually extract the value and extract the numbers and put it and make it into meaningful and put the graph out there and go, what is my average price per hour? And I'm, I'm bad at doing that. I love it and I know the value, but to get around to it, I'm shocking. I imagine as part of what you do is being a business coach, you get asked lots of questions. Mm. What's the one question that nobody ever asks you, but you wish they did? I, I have a, a real, so the one question is that, should I be in business? Now, not every single person should actually be a business owner or a freelancer or an entrepreneur, which is bullshit, okay? So often it's guys coming to business going, I've got this business, I'm in the business. And it's about really knowing me and knowing my business and the way I, I am, should I be in business? Because some of my clients, I'd be like, actually, you'd probably be a better employee to somebody else's business. You'd probably make more money as an employee in someone else's business. So that no one ever asks that because they all have the confidence in going, I am the business owner. Like, mm. I want to be an entrepreneur, which is also bullshit. People have harped this entrepreneurial space. Yeah, totally. What keeps you up at night? Um, emails. Really? So I have huge anxiety for Inbox Zero. Huge. Like, <laughs> I have an email which I know can wait three days. Like, it's just not important. But I know I've got to get to those emails. Like, it, it, it drives me insane. So if you woke up and you had 2,000 emails. I'd shit myself. <laughs> yeah, I would. Um, and, and fortunately, you know, it's, uh, my clients have access to me and, and I do t deal with a lot of emails. But I, I, I set that expectation up front. I check emails in the morning quite early and generally in the afternoons or evenings. Mm -hmm. So your email, if it's important and you need me to read it now, send it to me and then call me and go check your mail. So I've managed to push that back, but yet internally I still have this anxiety of, of making sure I get emails. And some of the things that's really stupid is I, I've, one of my clients a long time ago said to me, they have a one-touch policy with email. So if you see the emails unread, if you open it, deal with it. Never, ever, ever unmark it as read, like so un unread it, okay, mm -hmm. and go back to it later. So because otherwise what you're doing is you're actually worrying about too many things to choose up bandwidth. So I know that if I open up a mail and it means I've got to do half an hour's work, then I've got to do the work. I can't, I can't go back and unread, and unread it. Yeah. So that's also a stupid internal thing, but that's what uh, drives me nuts. Yeah. Cool. And uh, silly question then. Mm -hmm. You've got a little one on the way. Yeah, um, how are you going to balance work life and family? So, I don't know how I'm going to balance it all, but I'll tell you what my what my, my strategy is. Quite simple. So, fundamentally, I sell month a month package to my clients. I see most of my clients once a month, some every two weeks. My meetings are an hour and a half to two hours. Most of my older clients are still on two hours, but I have a, most of my clients now at one and a half. Um, I can do four sessions in a day. 
which I'm sitting in consultation for six hours. I produce notes and I deal with emails. Now, that for me is a long day because mentally I give a lot. So four kills me. My wife knows if I've had a four-day meeting, I come home, don't speak to me for a couple of hours because I'm, I'm like exhausted, okay? So I know that if I do a four-day, a four, a four a four-session day, I'm not coming home to look after my child. I, I won't have the capacity. So fortunately, I have a, a, a virtual assistant who has been here for two years, and she manages my diary. And I've said to her, I'm going back on the 10th of Jan, two a day. I don't care what time of the day they are, so make them for the client. Do not book me more than two. Now, traditionally, it was keep me busy. I don't care what happens. Shuffle, just keep me back to back because that's why I'm making money. Now I'm going to go and say two a day. Now, the reality is that I generally do between 30 and 40 client meetings a month. Now, I can have a day with no meetings and a day with five. And now I'm just going to go, dear clients, fit in with my two a day. So I may piss off a few clients um, and so be it. I'll still be on email. I'll still be on phone call, but I'll have a huge capacity in terms of, even, and my wife can understand this, that if I'm starting at eight and finishing at 12, I'll be home at one. Wonderful. Some days I'll leave home at, at nine or 10 in the morning and I'm at five, but I'll always be a couple more hours than the norm out there available. I think that's initially for the first month or two, that's the sort of mandate. Thereafter, see we'll, how it goes. we'll see how it goes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. When you hear the word successful, who do you think of and why? Um, so, interesting enough, let's go back to my Holland, Richard. Uh-huh. So, I don't think Richard is successful in his current business. Okay, he's, he's he's missing link. It's been a good business. Don't get me wrong. It's given him all things he, he could possibly wish for in his life, but it hasn't fulfilled him enough. His new business in going into the public speaking arena is where I'm going. Here's the guy that was built for this. Okay, like if he needed finance to build that business. I'd bond my house. So I think that he's now becoming very successful in something that he actually enjoys. And it's a business selling time, but at a huge price per hour. And I think that I'm jealous of that. Okay. Mm. So maybe not successful. Um, when, I, when I think of successful, there are a couple of guys that are making lots and lots of money, aren't happy. I don't think, I don't think that's necessarily no. success for me. Um, my old coach, Venice, a successful business. I mean, he was a coach for many, many, many years. He impacted a lot of people in a positive way um, and lived a good lifestyle. His lifestyle. I mean, he traveled a lot, but it was his lifestyle. I think he was a successful man. Um, but the reality for me is that what's on your epitaph? What's on your, on your, on your tombstone? So it used to be Spilly owned a big business, made lots of cash. Okay. And now it's like, hopefully, if tomorrow I get knocked over my, my, my bike and people come to my funeral, my clients hopefully come going, he made a difference. And I think that if, if I've made a difference to their lives and their businesses, but like really made a difference, then I've, I've, I've been successful in my business. Awesome. So I think that's what, that's what I think is success for me. Yeah, yeah. agree. Awesome. Great sentiments. Contrary to that, when yeah. you hear the word punchable, who do you think of I and why? Say that. Why not? Come on. Is it rich? <laughs> Ex-girlfriend. Is it rich? <laughs> um, no, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not an abuser. Um, no, listen, I, I, like there, there, there are a couple of guys that piss me off. So currently on my radar, Gary Vaynerchuk. Gary Dude, Veed. Okay. so glad you said okay. that. So, so, okay, but, but the reason why I want to punch him, besides the fact that he's this annoying little, you know, like – Russian-American mix who, who actually doesn't speak about very smart stuff. 
The reason I want to punch him is, how did he do what he's done? How did he get so successful? How did he get so famous? Um, and it irritates me that guys like that can do it. And, and if you, if you watch him, you understand that he's, he's a worker. He grafts his ass off. He's not a stupid kid. Um, but I want to punch him because he, he just irritates me. So maybe they're, they're, that's your answer, you know? Yeah, perfect. I want to punch him and shake his hand. Yeah, at the yeah. same time. Maybe give him a hug. Yeah. <laughs> he's very charismatic. Though, Absolutely. Eh? Yeah. yeah, that's probably the one thing that sets him apart. Yeah, there's a couple Charisma. of guys like that. I mean, and, and Casey Nastat as well. He's the kind of guy where I'm like, you, like, you irritate me, but I'm super jealous of what you've done. Yeah. You know? If you could go back to yourself and have coffee with yourself when you were 20 years old yep. and give yourself one advice. piece of advice, yeah, what, what would, would that be? be? Crystal clear. We talked about it this morning. At the age of 20, I bought a house in Parkhurst. I want to put this in perspective, okay? So Parkhurst pricing basically was doubling year on year for many, many, many years. It's stupid, stupidly expensive per square in the area. I walked into a house I was looking for a house. I walked into the house. The house was 320 grand. It was on the front cover of Architectural Magazine, 320 grand. And I walked in and I went, yeah, I can't afford this and walked out. And the stage agent said to me, come back, come back, give me your details. I was like, no, 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 this is out of my price range. I can tell this is out of my price range. And I was, I was earning three grand a month. So, and I, I couldn't afford it. A couple of months went past and that woman phoned me and said to me, that house that you wanted is still on the market. I lied. It was 380 grand. I ended up buying it for 320 and it was like I was committing my life. Like I moved in that house. I had no furniture. I had nothing. Within about four years, that house was paid for and furnished. I used to throw wild parties and all my friends were still studying and I had the two German sports cars in the, in the garage. The one thing that I would definitely have done was not blow so much money, save more and absolutely buy five or six more houses in Parkhurst. It's yeah. like, in hindsight, You'd be laughing now, yeah. absolutely smiling. Um, and I could have absolutely done it. And there was a, a period in my life where for about eight years I was debt-free, but didn't save any money. And I, if I think about where, uh, no regrets. I mean, I enjoy the fact that I traveled like a lunatic and I had lots of fun. But if I'd been smarter with my money, I'd be a lot more comfortable today. Awesome. Yeah, safe. Last question for you, buddy. Yeah. Um, What's your why as an entrepreneur? What gets you out of bed in the morning? I, I think that business is a great hobby. I love seeing how businesses work and how people work businesses. I love seeing businesses succeed. I love seeing what businesses do for people and not about just money, just in terms of growing them. Like I, I have clients that come in like church mouse and within two years are like public speaking. I love watching that. That gives me my why. Like if I can help see that and often it takes longer and, and you don't always know what the results are and there are a couple of obvious stars. But for me, that's in a business perspective, that's my why. And with that comes the finance. You know, money will come in if, if, if I, if I believe that it will come in and someone else want to punch in the face, Simon Sinek. Like he, that, 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 that book and that, that YouTube video has ruined some of my clients because they can't move forward because they don't know what their why is. And I'm going, actually, you just need to make a living. Just start. Just go. Yeah. yeah just like, start. Stop Stop getting stuck on what's my meaning. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Or purpose yeah. or passion. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah. Although it's valuable if you have the answers. And, and I found that the people that really appreciate that, that why are mature businesses. Mm. Not, not, so they're, they're either very, very immature and don't really understand their business mm. or mature businesses. But in between, it's not that important. Mm. Go get some clients, deliver good quality, whatever you're delivering, yeah. build them, collect your money, move on. Just do it. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. 
Brent, that concludes your time in the hot seat. Cool, it's been an absolute pleasure and honor to get to know you. Uh, definitely, definitely want to sign up. No worries. Cool. And uh, if you can fit me in at some point, let me know. Next year. Next year. Yeah, yeah sure. Like when you go the two hours a week. Yeah, yeah. we'll talk about what and you're you doing next. Yeah, no, we must. We must. Cool. We must. Definitely. Thank you so much, no, buddy. My pleasure. Thank you. And wish you all the best. Uh, you too. Ciao. Cheers. This is just a quick message to all of you who have not yet gone to digitalkungfu.co.za to register and sign up to join the Digital Kung Fu community. If you do that right now, I will send you some free training. It's uh, some stuff I've developed specifically for entrepreneurs and business owners. Uh, I like to kill my subscribers with kindness, so to speak. Um, but yeah, the main reason is it gives me a way to communicate with you and to get to know you personally a bit better. So if you haven't done so, please do that now. And so until next time, keep hustling with Digital Kung Fu. Remember that the Digital Kung Fu Show is now on iTunes, so head on over there now and leave us a review. You can also catch the Digital Kung Fu Show on player.fm, Stitcher, and cliffcentral.com. Thanks for listening to the Digital Kung Fu Show. If you'd like to check out more episodes and get access to our growing community of entrepreneurs working together to succeed in business, then please visit our website at www.digitalkungfu.co.za. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients Clients Haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an X.com.